morning. Let's open our Bibles together. Revelation chapter 1. And if you missed last week's message, I would strongly encourage you to track that down and listen to it. I try not to say that very much, but uh, what we covered last week will give you a foundation for what's coming. And we got a long way to go in the book, and uh, we went through, you have in your bulletin there, again this week, uh, some principles outlined, but also some principles for understanding Revelation. So what I did last week is kind of walk through those, explain those. Um, which are just going to be fundamental for, uh, I think, getting the most we can out of the book. So if you didn't, if you weren't here last week or you missed last week's message, I know it's a lot of me in one week, but maybe t- you know, after today you could also do that as well um, and get caught up. Before we read, one thing I want to emphasize um, as we get into Revelation, and I'll be saying it again, but God did not give us this book to scare you. He gave us this book to bless us. It says right there in verse 3, if you hear and you keep what is written in this book, you will be blessed. We find it today, grace and peace. So we're intimidated of this book, understandably, and I know that there's a lot of that. Like, maybe the way you were raised or the way you were taught or whatever, just your own kind of, this is weird and scary. But we want to keep impressing upon you, and I think God wants to impress upon you, this book is not meant to confuse you. It's actually meant to bring clarity. It's not meant to scare you. It's actually meant to reduce your fear and increase your courage. So, hoping that you can open yourself up, open your mind and heart to that truth, Uh, no matter what your background is or what your experience is with the book of Revelation. So let's read together, starting in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha And the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before your throne, guilty transgressors, debtors, criminals, having no hope in this life or the next apart from you. 
Lord, we confess that we do not give you the thanks and praise and worship that you deserve as we see the Apostle John break into doxology to worship. Lord, it, it convicts us that, boy, we don't do this enough. We become so self-focused. We become uh, concerned with building our kingdoms rather than glorifying and glorying in your kingdom. Lord, we minimize and devalue your church, the church that you love, the church that you sent your only begotten son to die for, just has such a low priority in many of our lives. Lord, we don't think about your second coming enough. We don't consider that you, you will one day soon come on the clouds and return to complete salvation for your people and to complete judgment for those who have not accepted you and believed in you. And for all of this and more, we ask your forgiveness. We repent in dust and ashes. And we are thankful that we can turn to Jesus and see his shining righteousness there for us at our worst moments. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you shed your precious blood on the cross that we might be clean. You paid the debt that we could not pay. You were judged as a murderer and a criminal when you were not. For our sake. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise and dominion and fame. You are worthy of our very lives. Our lives are not our own. They are ransomed. Use them in any way that you wish. That is our humble request. We are your slaves and servants. So we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and fill. You are here already. You don't need our invitation, thankfully. You are here. You are among us. You are working. You are changing. You are transforming. You are encouraging. You are convicting. You are teaching. You are helping. You are loving. So we ask you do the work that only you can do. For apart from you, I can do nothing. None of us can. So we pray for the power, presence, and perfecting work of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as we get going in this great book of Revelation, singular, singular, <clears throat> Revelation, what has happened is that John is called up into heaven, as the great prophets are, into a dreamlike experience where God shows him this world, our world, from the perspective of heaven. Jesus essentially says, John, get up here and look around at what's going on in your world from my perspective, and I want you to write down what you see. I want you to write down this sort of dream, prophetic vision that you're having. I want you to write it down. That's a pretty amazing experience. Would we agree? Uh, has that happened to any of you? Have you been called up into heaven and, and shown, uh, you know, both heaven and earth from God's perspective? If you have, just call me this week because we need to talk. That's a pretty amazing experience, and yet... Is it mainly for John? No. 
Why does Jesus go to all this trouble? Why does he apocalypse? Why does... Why the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, the revealing of who he is and what he's doing in this world? Why give John a tour of heaven? Why to go to all this trouble? It's not just for John. It's for the church. It's for the church. Written down for the seven churches. So we're going to get into this, but let me just ask, how high a place does the church hold in your mind and heart? How high a place does a church hold in, in your mind and heart? How important is this to you? Because it's very, very important to God. It's very, very important to God. Um, when I was graduating seminary, I visited a church I was applying for an internship at. And um, I was sitting talking with the pastor. And he was explaining to me their internship program. And they... they would interview a bunch of guys. They'd actually bring them on campus to the church. They would uh, uh, you know, walk through a weekend with them. Then they'd eventually they'd bring on a couple of guys to come into the church, maybe three, four every year. Uh, they would house them. They would pay them. They would uh, mentor them. They'd try to send them out and give them a good reference as they went out into the world. And I was feeling a little cheeky that day. So I said, why do you go to all that trouble? That sounds like a lot. Why do you go to all that trouble? And he said, because it's the church. How could we not? How could we not go to all that trouble when it's God's church? That is so right. That's exactly right. This is not a letter mainly written to you and me individually. It's written to us, the church. God really loves and values his church. 22 chapters for you. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. These are seven real churches, um, but they represent all of God's people. We'll talk more about that next week. Seven represents completion, the unity, the fullness of all God's people. So, yes, there were seven real churches, and we'll talk about why seven and, and who they were, and, and we're going to get into that in the weeks to come. But know that it represents the universal church, including you. That's who he's writing to. And, and God's heart is what? Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. He knows that's what we need in this present evil age, in this difficult world that we live in, fallen, evil, grace and peace. What would change in your life if you received God's grace more fully? How many of your struggles are really not believing that God loves you? How many of your fears are your own insecurity? Am I good enough? Does God love me? Am I forgiven? Am I being punished? Is that why this bad thing is happening to me? Because I did this, and so God is punishing me. Does he really love me? What if you believed you were loved unconditionally, without question? What would change in your life? 
How would your life change if you had more of God's peace? How many of us are just anxious? We don't even know why, maybe, but we just feel anxious. We don't have peace. How many of your decisions are based on fear and not on faith? How do you get that? How do you get grace and peace into your life? There's only one source, relationship with God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, that's the source of all grace, of all peace. Think about it from a child's perspective. What makes a child feel safe? What makes them not worry about car insurance and locked doors and breaking lamps? Why do they not care about that stuff? Like they just play. They're just happy. They're not anxious. They're not fearful. When you know that someone strong is protecting you. When you know someone loves you unconditionally. When you know someone great is on your side. Mom and dad, strong and kind. Protecting, caring, loving, there with you. That gives you peace. If you didn't have parents like that, and I know some of us didn't, it can be hard to believe that God is like that. But he is. It can be hard to believe that God loves you like that. But he does. Right here in Revelation 1, God is saying, I am big enough, I am good enough, I am gracious enough, I am wise enough to handle anything in your life. I've got you. I got you. Grace resulting in peace. That's what this book is about. And I want that for you today. I want, I want it to come into your life to a greater degree. So we're going to unpack that in the text. The Trinity exhaustively on your side. So I have three points, Father, Spirit, Son. Let's start with the Father. Grace and peace come from Him who is, and who was, and who is to come. Who is Him? God the Father. Now God is a Father with a Father's heart before He is anything else. Before He's a Creator, before He's a Redeemer, He's a Father. Very important. What does a father have to have to be a father? A son. He's always had a son, eternally begotten of the father. So the father's role, he's the initiator, he's the architect, he's the general, he's the source of all goodness. He's the one leading. And here's the big idea John wants us to get. God is the ultimate reality in the universe. Not us. Not you and me. Everything begins and ends with God and His glory. Amen? That is bedrock for us at West Center Baptist. That is who we are. We are a God-centered people. So when you come on Sunday, more than anything else, we want you to leave aware of the presence and power of God. The grace and love and truth of God. Not me, not anybody else. We're just vessels, we're just channels. It's about God. In the beginning, God. Not us. 
That's what this is about. That's what we're about. That's what the Bible's about. That's what Christianity is about. And the teaching of the Bible could not be more radically different than the teaching of the world on this subject. We live in a time of radical individualism. More than any time in history of the world, we, we see ourselves as radically individualistic. It's, it's about me. So the creed of, of the world today is this. There is no higher authority than how I feel. There is no higher authority than how I feel. Not my family, not my body, not my biology, not my country, certainly not my creator. No authority except how I feel. And the tragedy is when you buy into that, that I am what I feel, what are the fruit? What's the fruit of that? Loneliness, depression, anxiety, fear, confusion, loneliness. That's not just me saying it. The statistics back it up. The deeper you go into yourself, the worse it gets. The more I have to decide everything, including my own gender, including my sexuality. You know what kind of pressure that puts on you? You know how that, that, how that confuses you? These are supposed to be givens by your creator. You don't have to think about it. Now, it doesn't mean that people can't struggle because we all have struggles. It doesn't mean that we can't work through it and help people through it. Absolutely, we need to be doing that because maybe, you know, I didn't wake up and decide I was going to struggle with those things. Maybe you don't even want to struggle with them, and you are. That's okay. But the ideology, the philosophy of the world that is not just this is accepted, but this is, this is now the law. That you are what you feel. And if you deny that in any way, you're an inauthentic person. You, you are failing to be who you are, who you are. Rather than receiving that, receiving that, these givens from a higher authority. It's about God. We are made by a creator. He, he knows what he's doing. Therefore, your body does not lie when you're born. Those who look outside to God to receive what he has said, what is the fruit? Peace, joy, belonging, clarity. This is what we want for the world. This is what we want for the world. It's not, we're not saying we have it all together. We don't have struggles. We're a mess. But we're looking to God. We're not looking to ourselves. There's no hope there, friends. Notice, God is leading here with the present. He who is. He who is. Not the past, not the future. Him who is, is first. His sovereignty 
over the past, over the future, is meant to comfort you in the presence. He's in charge right now. And the Father wants to get this point through. So he just says, you know what, I'm going to pick up the mic and I'm going to speak directly to you. Look at verse 8. One of only two places in the book that God speaks directly to you. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You think he wants you to hear that? He says it twice. Now, Alpha and the Omega, they're the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Most of you know that. What's the point? God is the beginning and the end. He's the creator and the finisher. He's in charge of both sides of history and everything in between. He's got it. He's got it. You can take him at his word. He's got it. Knows what he's doing. He's in charge. That's good news. Spirit. How about the spirit? Grace and peace also comes from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This isn't Ghostbusters, okay? This isn't Indiana Jones. I mean, I want you to use your imagination, but like put it in the right direction here. Seven spirits swirling around God's throne. No, that's not what's happening. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. And, and the seven, again, is this sense of completion, fullness, the spirit going out into the world. One spirit. If you're new to the Holy Spirit, here's his job description. He is the power, presence, and perfecter of every work of God. Some of you like war movies. See if this helps. Think of the Spirit as the, the special forces member of the Trinity. He's boots on the ground. He's, at the, he's on the front lines. If you're the enemy, you do not want to run into him. Okay, this is power. Like a Navy SEAL, he's sent by the commander-in-chief to bring the power and presence of the United States military to your doorstep. That's his job. Perfectly executing the mission of the Father in the Son. That's why the first member of the Trinity that you meet when you become a Christian is the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? So you're sitting in church or you're wherever you are, you're reading your Bible or you're talking to a friend and, and you hear the gospel, you hear the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so you could have eternal life. And miraculously, unbeknownst to you, the Holy Spirit, because you're chosen by God, you're, you're elected by Him in eternity past, the Holy Spirit comes upon your heart, changes your heart, and, and as Trevor taught us a few weeks ago, the first cry of the newborn is faith. So you hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit, you experience the, the love of God is poured into your heart, Romans 5. The Holy Spirit. That's the first member of the Trinity that you, if you're a Christian, that you experience. Sometimes he, he kind of gets like second or third fiddle, you know, uh, especially maybe in certain circles where it's a little, you know, more, okay? Holy Spirit's a big deal. No new birth. Jesus says you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You can't be born again without the Holy Spirit. That's his job. So the beautiful thing for us New Covenant, New Testament Christians is 
He changes our hearts. He comes upon us, and he doesn't leave. In the Old Testament, he would regenerate, but he would, he would leave. And now the dwelling, the filling of the Holy Spirit has come, and he stays. So he's within you forever. If you're feeling that today, don't fight it. If you're feeling God's spirit move in your heart and you couldn't have predicted it, you didn't know, you didn't even know you'd be here today, but you are and you feel it. You feel something happening, something I'm saying, something in the worship service. It's just you're tracking with it, you're feeling it, it's impacting you. Don't fight it. That's God's spirit. That's what he does. Receive him. Receive him. You can't see the Spirit. You can't predict what He's going to do. But when you see people respond to God's Word, you know He's on the move. When you see a life transformed and transforming, the Spirit's on the move. Grace and peace from the Spirit. How about the Son? Grace and peace also comes from the Son. Look with me at verse 5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. What does that mean? Well, Jesus has gone through persecution, suffering, and death in obedience to the Father, and he has been completely vindicated. In other words, he wasn't a fool for doing that. He was wise. He doesn't regret following God all the way unto death, even death on a cross. He doesn't regret it. He's thankful he did it. It was worth it. It was worth it. Jesus has gone through everything you are going through, will go through, and more. And his life testifies that trusting and obeying God is the right choice. Look what happened to him. He is now seated at the Father's right hand, high above every rule and authority, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It worked out pretty well. And it will work out well for you if you trust and obey the Lord. Jesus is the faithful witness. He testifies. When you're going through something hard, and some of you have gone through really hard things, how encouraging is it when you meet someone who has gone through what you're going through? How encouraging is it to have someone say, I've been there? And they really have. It's not just like, oh, yeah, I know, I understand. Actually, you don't. But someone who really has. And they've come through it. And they might have bruises and scars, and they might be, you know, banged up a little bit, but they're okay. Isn't that encouraging? For you as you're going through it, that's who Jesus is for us. That's what all the saints who have gone before us, the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews. They're not watching, cheering us on. No, their lives are a testimony. That, that's why Hebrews 11 brings them all out, this parade of people. They went through this. They went through that. They went through this. They were sawn in two. They were burned alive. They were crucified upside down. They were thrown to the lions, and yet now they're reigning with Christ. It's worth it. It's, it's going to be worth it. Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead. Can't go into that much, but... Just basically, 
Jesus is the first one to be resurrected. And as he goes, so goes you. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. So if he is resurrected, you will be too. Firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He is the ruler of the kings, ruler of kings on earth. He is the ruler of kings on earth. We give Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin way too much credit. We ascribe them far more power than they have. There is always someone standing behind them and above them. And they can't lift their pen to sign an executive order unless Jesus Christ allows them to. They can't speak a word. They can't lift a finger unless he authorizes it. So let's not focus too much on what this important person this th is doing. Let's remember this truth. There is a ruler of the kings of the earth, and his name is Jesus. He, he's never made a bad decision. Now, we might not believe that sometimes when we, we read the news. What do you mean he didn't make a bad decision? Look at what's happening. He hasn't. He never will. Now, we don't always understand why, but we don't need to to trust, do we? And I find it amazing that as John is giving this resume of Jesus, as he's rolling out these titles, what, what, what happens in him? As he's thinking about Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, he just gets worked up, he's compelled to start worshiping. That's what he does. This is what happens to us when we see something great. When you're at a game and you see a great play, what do you do? You clap, you stand up, you cheer, you yell. Some of you, it's like, if I watched you at a, a baseball game or a football game, I wouldn't even recognize you because i never seen you yell. i never seen you get that excited. When you go to your, your favorite band's concert and you're singing at the top of your lungs, I didn't see you singing like that in church. You get worked up because you see something great. It's just, it, it rises up within you. You're compelled, and that's what happens to John. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Yes, John's saying. I agree with that. I want that to be true. It's in his heart. It's in his bones. He's standing up and he's praising and worshiping. It just comes out of him. And this is just an aside, but I, let me say... This needs to be happening in our homes. This is not weird. It's not weird at a football game. It's not weird at a concert. Why is it weird in our homes that sometimes we would just be caught up in who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that we would just praise him? That it would just happen organically. We didn't plan it, but we're just talking or we're praying or reading our Bible and just, Lord, glory to your name. You have freed me from my sin. You have made me a priest in your kingdom. I'm almost home. Thank you. 
Parents, let your kids see you do it. There's nothing more powerful than a parent, particularly a dad, who does that, who, who imitates John. When I pray in our family, I make a point at times, even just a dinner prayer, not to ask for anything, not even to say thank you for the good day, thank you for this, thank you, it's all good, but just to worship. Lord Jesus, you are the firstborn of the dead. Thank you that your resurrection guarantees ours. You are the faithful witness all the way until death. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the Almighty. That's it. Just worship. That's a really good prayer. That's a really good instinct. That's a really good thing. It it should just happen. If it's not, think about that. John breaks into doxology. Let's break it down. First, Jesus' love isn't sentimental, it's sacrificial. It's by his blood. It's not just a feeling, it's an action. The Son of God gave up his life so sin would have no power in your life anymore, and and it doesn't. He has freed you, brothers and sisters. You are free. That's why we call sin voluntary slavery for the Christian, because we don't have to choose it anymore. The law is written on your heart. The Spirit is in your heart. You have the power and ability to obey God. We can't blame blame it on anything but our flesh anymore. You have been set free. You can live free. Maybe somebody needs to hear that. By His blood, He made us a kingdom. Understand from the perspective of heaven, this is the greatest, most powerful, most glorious kingdom in the world. Right here. Church. Does it feel like that? Not really? That's why we have Revelation, because it shows us the true reality of things. It's not the United States. It's not China. It's not Russia. It's not anybody The greatest, most powerful, most glorious kingdom in the world right now has made us, has made us, is the church, the kingdom of God. Some of you don't feel like that and you don't feel like you're much use in the church. What do I really have to offer? You don't feel particularly close to God. I don't feel like a priest to God, but don't trust your feelings. What does God say about that? He says, you're a priest. In a biblical sense, a priest has intimate access to God anytime, anywhere. Into the Holy of Holies, through the blood of Jesus. You have access to God. Intimate access. The most intimate any human being can have. Not only that, but you have a calling from God. So you have access to God and you have a calling from God, outward. To serve. Priests serve. Priests teach. They represent the king. Point is, if you take this verse seriously, you're closer to God than you think. You're more significant in in his purposes than you think. You have access to him and you have a calling from him. That's what it means to be a priest. 
And you all are prophet, priests, and kings in Jesus Christ. Now, John closes by reminding us that Jesus' work isn't quite finished. The final state of grace and peace is yet to come. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, most scholars agree that Revelation has the highest number of Old Testament references in all the New Testament. These are not direct quotes like you're used to seeing in other books in the New Testament, but they're allusions, they're echoes, they're just little fragments that, that John uses and pieces together. And he does this in this verse with two particular passages. One is Daniel 7.13. One like the Son of Man coming on the clouds before the Ancient of Days. And then he uses Zechariah 12.10, where Israel will look on the one they have pierced and mourn for him. So John takes those texts in their context, he brings them together to show that Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. They were, in the end, ultimately about Jesus. They were about other things in their time and place, but they were about Jesus mainly. It's all about Him. He's been pierced on the cross. He's risen. He's ascended to the Father, and He's coming back. Every eye will, future tense, see Him. I believe this is the second coming. I believe that's what it's talking about. And notice... It's not secret. <laughs> it's public. You can't miss it. You can't ignore it. Every eye, every eye will see all the tribes of the earth. The voice of the archangel will sound. The trumpet of God will sound. You can't miss it. And people ask me if I believe in the rapture. And my answer is yes. If what you mean is at this moment when Jesus returns, we will be caught up in the air, which is what it means, rapture, caught up in the air with him at the end as he brings judgment, as he institutes the new heavens and the new earth, as he brings about the resurrection of the dead, that at this moment we will be, if we're alive at that time, raptured up into the air with him. Yes. But. My answer is no, if what you mean by rapture is Jesus will secretly return so that no one knows, and all the Christians alive at that time will vanish up into heaven before there's persecution and tribulation on the earth. I, I think the Bible, the New Testament, clearly teaches, 1 Thessalonians 4 would be another place to go, that there is one public return of Jesus Christ. We can have some disagreements about maybe what happens at that point as it relates to the millennium and so on, but to me, this is pretty clear. When that happens, on that day, what does it mean that those who pierced him in all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him? Some see this as a moment of great worldwide repentance. Uh, mourning, wailing, saying, we were wrong, you are the king, we repent and believe. And when you read Zechariah 12, that makes some sense. 
I mean, I, I think that could be true. I think that could be what it means. But I think it also very clearly means this is a moment of judgment. This is the world's oh crap moment. All the people who dismissed Jesus, who, who didn't listen when you wanted to talk to him about God, who, who said, you know, he's, he's just a good teacher. There's some nuggets in the Bible that, you know, Sermon on the Mount, that's good stuff. Ten Commandments, that's good stuff. But they, they sort of dismissed it. They ignored Jesus. This is the moment when they say, uh-oh. I, I feel my knee bending and I feel my neck bowing. And I'm not telling them to do that. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess everything that Jesus Christ is Lord. That moment, the time for repentance will have passed. Now is the time for repentance. Now is the day of salvation. And what a day it will be. For those who love God. On that day, the long, dark night of this fallen world will be over. And the light of heaven, Jesus, will be the sunrise that begins the new creation. And the sun will never set again, friends. Will you think about it? Can you imagine it? such good news. It's meant to give you grace and peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this promise of your coming. How we long to see you coming on the clouds. How we long to be caught up in the air with you. Crowned kings and queens in your kingdom forever, all by your grace, all because of your blood, all because you simply chose to love us. Help us now, Lord, to enter into receiving the gospel not only heard but seen in the Lord's Supper. In your name, amen.